everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Things are finally warming up here in California. It's been raining a lot the past few weeks, and man, oh, I love the sunset. I love the sun. I love the summer. I'm ready. It is super wet here in Seattle. It is the exact same shade of gray everywhere you look in the sky. It's not exciting at all. Uh, the only thing that is warming up faster, though, is crypto. So that's exciting. Yeah, speaking of crypto heating up, we've been saying this for a while. It is time for the crypto bull run. The bottom is in, and we have a fantastic guest on the show who's here to tell you exactly why. Do we have to give some disclaimer? <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, we should give a disclaimer. You guys, David Puel, our guest, is not an idiot, but we are, and this is definitely not investment advice. Nothing Back. here is financial advice, but we are about to talk about the markets because we're all super excited about them. Uh, and, and David Puel is the right guest for the time. Uh, he comes from Adaptive Capital, uh, and they do a lot of uh, very specialized investment strategies using on-chain analytics, using like uh, the timing of UTXOs cross-referenced with the price and how long these uh, Bitcoins have been dormant. Uh, and like where where they're going and how fast they're traded. So getting really, really um, in deep with the actual DNA of the blockchain, if you will. Uh, the uh, Adaptive Capital is doing a really good job kind of providing a actual illustration of what the blockchain actually is for um for investing, uh, investment firms, hedge funds that come from outside of the crypto space that want to dabble in crypto, but also need to be comfortable with understanding what they are actually buying and the uh, on-chain analytics from adaptive capital is doing that for them so whether you're a believer in ethereum or bitcoin or whatever you still have to take your hat off and tip it to them for being able to actually give an illustration as to what the blockchain is doing uh, and make make people who don't really feel the same passion about crypto still buy into it so hats off to them yeah, they are really digging into blockchain fundamental analysis at like the core. They're going all the way down to the protocol and they're literally only focusing what is happening on the blockchain. And it is really impressive when you listen to this interview. David knows the entire Bitcoin chart. He knows the entire blockchain like the back of his hand. It's crazy. He's not even looking at a chart and he's just talking about, you know, what happens now and then what happens in 2014. And it's it's really, you know, you can tell that he spent a lot of time with this content. Absolutely. Totally agree. And so let's just go ahead and get right into it. Let's bring you David Puel. All right, guys, I want to introduce you to a very special guest to the podcast, David Puel. David was introduced to us by Murad. He is one of his partners at Adaptive, and he has been doing some fantastic work when it comes to figuring out what on-chain analytics and what on-chain fundamentals really predict and, and, and show the price of where Bitcoin is going to go. Um, David, thanks for coming on to POV Crypto. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, David, uh, would love to kind of jump in a little bit with like your background and how you got into crypto. Uh, why don't you tell our audience about yourself? 
Um, my Bitcoin story it started out very mildly in 2015. I remember just buying very little Bitcoin back then, um, just as an experiment. I've been mostly leaning to the libertarian, you know, all the uh, anarcho-capitalist movement, whatever. Uh, so I kind of was interested in this new take and experiment, um, but didn't mind it that much uh, for a while. I just hold on to it a little bit. Aside from that, I returned to it full time starting Q1 or Q2 2017. Um, that's when I, um, after delving into mostly forex trading for a while, I uh, pretty much became fully obsessed down the rabbit hole for um, several months. So I shifted all my focus in terms of trading to crypto. Uh, and I've been trading crypto full time ever since. Um, now I've been working with Murad Mahmudov uh for uh, what is it like almost a year now i don't know several months perhaps nine ten months or so um i'm head of research at adaptive capital um that's the name of our fund and um recently uh, last perhaps four or five months uh, have delved into on-chain analytics more severely newly obsessed about it, although technical analysis is my first love. I, I, um, I became obsessed in the um, X-ray economics of the blockchain, especially in Bitcoin, uh, which I find quite beautiful. Aside from that, I also have a background in humanities. I actually, my earliest degree was in literature. So yeah, I'm kind of a polymath uh, and, and I kind of like it that way. So David, before you got into Bitcoin and crypto, can you kind of exp uh, explain any background you have with like markets or just like fundamental analysis of, um, I don't know, networks or, or companies or, or like what did you pay attention to either professionally or, or academically or just as a personal interest that kind of prepped you to be prepared for the, the Bitcoin world? Uh, the, the part about on-chain analysis, uh, it pretty much comes from um, trading and, and TA. That's my, my background. Actually, I'm um, mostly self-thought in finance and uh, I just delved into it, started trading, was successful at it uh, for years consistently, and then just became obsessed with um, TA and then on-chain analytics. That's pretty much it. So what, what do you trade before Bitcoin? Uh, Forex, mostly. No, just currencies? Yeah. Cool. So what helped you find success in Forex trading and how has that helped you with Bitcoin and crypto? They're quite different. In fact, in fact, I believe that trading crypto is much easier, both from a technical standpoint, the signals are much cleaner and easy to both backtest back and uh, I don't know, from a pattern recognition standpoint, they're just much easier. The cycle, at least as of now, is much simpler to see. It's just a, a, an uptrend that follows a very symmetric logarithmic curve. Uh, so from that standpoint as well. Um, and also I think that the markets are more inefficient uh, in crypto. So you can actually get 
a little bit more of an edge. Uh, find things that other people haven't find um, and have a sense of, uh, I, I think that the signals work better either from a TA perspective, on-chain perspective, but also from a depth of market perspective, looking at bids and asks and all that stuff. Um, volume is much more complicated in crypto because exchanges vary so much. And quite a few of the exchanges have a lot of fake volume as you, you guys and pretty much everyone knows uh, in the space by now. Um, but even so, I think uh, if you, you're good enough to remove the noise about it. Um, for the most part, trading crypto is more profitable, at least for me. You kind of mentioned something about uh, market inefficiencies. Can you kind of illustrate a scenario of a market inefficiency and how you were able to capitalize on that? Um, well, the fact that TA works better in crypto is one sign that the market is more inefficient, for sure. That's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect is that I think, I don't know, I think that most people, especially smart people, overcomplicate the space in terms of price prediction. Um, that's why sometimes you have better price calls coming from crypto animals on Twitter than like long-term traders. I think it comes from, um, there's something about uh, crypto being First of all, price reflective, uh, reflexive, I'm sorry, um, in the sense that, you know, reflexivity can be defined as whenever the trend goes up, it keeps going up in a much more severe way than in any other more efficient market, quote unquote. And uh, just as it goes up, it also goes down. You can see in all the alts as well. If you compare the correction during this bear market uh, and Litecoin, Ethereum, or even, um, uh, I don't know if I can swear here, but the, the other alts, um, the more the, the other put coins, let's say, um, you you even see, um, um, you know, they tend to go down, and just for for going down, the probability of continuing that trend becomes more severe but there's um just just the same there's a spark um when you finally have capitulation that turns the trend up again and it's quite powerful and i i don't think that people even experienced traders uh quite understand that uh, like the spark we just saw in in the breakout the recent breakout we had from 4k to 5k um <clears throat> I think a lot of people were surprised, but I think things like that are um, important enough to actually shift the trend, the primary trend into the other direction. And I think that a lot of traders don't understand that about the market. Uh, Travis Kling from Ikigai has actually uh, gone, gone about the subject of re reflexivity in crypto markets uh, quite a lot, and I agree with this point. So, in other words, is that kind of just saying that, like, because Bitcoin went from four thousand to five thousand, because it did that, it is now made made it made people determine that we are outside of the bear market, and because people are determining that, there that that trend of going to 
5,000 to 6,000 is far more likely than going back down to 5,000 to 4,000? Is, is it just talking about like the emotions of, of traders? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Uh, FOMO produces FOMO quite mm -hmm. much more and FOD produces more FOD much more than traditional markets. Um, especially because, I don't know, there's a herd mentality in crypto, which is quite different to the to the herd mentality of traditional markets because, I mean, if you look at traditional markets, the herd is, I don't know, millions of people with extremely different interests, um, different countries, nationalities, religions, languages, uh, all game theoretically quite fighting against each other. And I don't think you, you have that much in the crypto space. You may have different languages, different backgrounds, that's for sure, in crypto especially. Uh, you may have different take, takes on the market, but I mean, look at hedge funds, for, for instance, right? Crypto hedge funds only have one asset class to invest in, right? They're mostly used um, by investors as, you know, their entry into the crypto markets, just in case crypto pumps again, right? Something like that. So I think that in general, the interest of the crypto people is more aligned, even though there's a lot of infighting for sure. But moves like that actually activate something in people, the animal spirits in a very um, closed or niche group of people that has an interest in a very niche and particular type of access, type of asset. So what about uh, like investor sophistication? How do, how do you feel that that kind of plays into the differences between traditional markets and crypto markets? Um, yeah, I was talking about this a little while ago uh, with, I talked about it on podcast with Tone and, and Tyler a few days ago, and also with um, been going back and forth with some people, uh, especially a few friends that tell me, for, uh, analysts as well uh, that tell me that a bearish argument could be made due to the fact that there's no institutional investors coming in, for instance, right? No ETF, uh, no valuation models, no, no nothing, uh, unreliable data, which is true, right? Uh, we just saw it on, on the, the data we were getting from blockchain.info. Um, so all that stuff, of course, dissuades institutional investors into getting into crypto. But I think that you have to look at it in terms of who's on top of the food chain in any given period of market. So for instance, in 2009 to 11, um, Bitcoin was mostly used as a vehicle to, um, you know, to play with. It was certainly a plaything uh, of technologists, uh, uh, anarcho-capitalists, etc. Right. The other stage of the market, uh, Willy Wu has gone about this subject quite a lot. The other stage of the market, once investors, maybe not sophisticated investors, but even a few libertarian investors got into the game, uh, then retail entered by 2013, 14, 15. And that drove the whole drove the whole bubble and bull run from 2016 and 17. And 
starting late 2017, I think the top of the food chain stands with the headphones. Um, people make the comparison between headphones in traditional markets and crypto headphones. And yes, there's a lot of dumb money in, in several crypto headphones. You have to be careful who do you invest your money in. But at the same time, um, I think it's a false comparison because, you know, yes, hedge funds on, on traditional markets always get wrecked. They underperform the market consistently, especially since the, since the 2000s, especially since the, the financial crisis. Uh, but why is that? Well, that's, that's actually a very good question, right? Uh, they were booming in the 80s and 90s, uh, given the um, consistent markets, uh, bull runs and the S&P, Dow, NASDAQ. Uh, they drove uh, several bubbles out of the great, defla uh, the great uh, stagflation, I'm sorry. Um, after, the, after that crisis, um, I mean, you can look at it this way. Statistically, the stock market trends in an uptrend, of course, about 22 years, more or less. And it consolidates for about 14.5 years uh, per consolidation. So you have, th th these consolidations are major ones, right? So you have like the tri symmetric triangle that was developed after the peak of the Great Depression that concluded that compressed the market and concluded into a huge breakout after World War II. Then you have another consolidation uh, in the great stagflation of the 70s, um, where inflation was quite huge, and especially the United States found itself in, in, a, in a very critical um, economical period, especially with OPEC and other macroeconomic structures. And then you have the boom of the 80s and 90s, which is just uptrend for the market, right? Then you have another consolidation, which is um, the double bubble of the 2000s, you know, the dot-com bubble. And then right after that, only eight years after that, the financial crisis. So, but if you actually zoom out the Dow chart, you only see the, that period of the dot-com bubble and housing bubbles as um, one of three major consolidations with the, within a, a major uptrend that, to be honest, surpasses anything we, we've seen on Bitcoin, right? And it's an uptrend that has sustained itself for more than a century now. Also with that uptrend, you can also see several things that go against crypto, like Keynesian economics and all that stuff. But for the most part, I, I just think, um, the state of the market was due a consolidation in statistical terms. That's one factor of it. Um, hedge funds have been wrecked because they used to be in an uptrend and a constant, um, very, very reliable uptrend, except for a few corrections like 87. Um, the thing was, uh, the only thing they had to do is just invest into the stock market. Um, now, statistically, you could say that that's the only thing they should do because um, the S&P, for instance, has outperformed 
most hedge funds anyway. But there's a sentiment of, I think, risk aversion. So they diversify, diversify a bit more. And um, there's also, I think, observer effect and a race to the bottom effect with hedge funds, um, where, um, I mean, you, you, you will see the same thing in crypto in the next cycle for sure. Hedge funds fighting against each other um, to get that edge when the market gets more efficient. Um, the markets are precisely that. There are race to the bottoms where very few people are the ones who make the most money. So I think that hedge funds getting wrecked in traditional markets right now, as opposed to the 80s and 90s, that's just because they are in a later stage of that race to the bottom. In terms of crypto, that race is just beginning. I think that's very interesting. Uh a very interesting take regarding where we are and you know generally speaking those hedge funds that are just essentially allocating resources to the market in a diversified way are probably going to be winning in the short and medium term but as these markets do mature um that's where it you know it makes sense to just buy um you know basic etf type products or maybe even you know buy bitcoin um instead uh, what's kind of your take on, you know, I know Murad kind of talked about how Bitcoin maximalists are probably right, but they're way too early. Like, what's your take on the state of the market? Uh, do you see alts being crushed? Do you see alts thriving, uh, you know, for the next few years? What, what, what do you see in this kind of like short to medium term outlook? Um, yeah, at the very least for the next cycle, by cycle, I mean, Assuming that we already bottomed, which is the take of many analysts, including myself, to perhaps if we go, um, if we take the theory that most Bitcoin market cycles are time boxed in a four year structure. So let's say we top again at about, what would it be, 2000, 2021, right? December 2021 or so. Uh, assuming that, <clears throat> I, I, I think that alts are going to outperform Bitcoin for the most part. They are the single, obviously the single greatest source of alpha in the ecosystem. Do you consider Ether an alt? Yeah. yeah I consider everything that's not Bitcoin an alt. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I would long it, but just from looking at the charts or perhaps something on chain that's significant to me. but. Like I don't have to like it. And that's, I think the take with a lot of hedge fund people right now, right? So it's like this, right? You don't have the privilege of diversification in crypto. So the only way to make alpha is straight alt, right? So if Bitcoin pumps, even if institutional investors or smarter money only get into Bitcoin, right? Um, hedge funds are going to pump alts anyway, because they, they have to get that alpha somehow, right? So that's one point. The other point I think is a lot of quote unquote smart people, but let's not, not say smart people, let's say liquid people, right? Believe in alts, that's a reality. Um, 
So going back to the, yes, perhaps they're a bit early. Um, Willie Wu has actually, we, we, we've discussed this with Willie quite a lot and he put it in a very beautiful way. If you're holding, uh, if you wanna get into crypto, right? If you wanna hold, uh, outperform the market or get the most juice out of it, just you're sure the bull run is going on, go into alts, but make sure you exit at the top. Otherwise you're gonna get wrecked. And that lasts for only a cycle, right? If you wanna go multi-cycle, 10 years, you know, anything more than four years, go into Bitcoin and just hold it. And that's it. If you go into alts, you have to exit at the top or at the first that got bounced or something like that um, and, go in, and go back into fiat for the rest of the bear market. And if you want to hold for 10 years, 20 years, just go into Bitcoin and that's it. So with that being said, how do you feel about just the buy and hold strategy? Personally, for me, I've actually never sold Bitcoin. I've only bought it. So uh, I'm definitely much more of a just buy and holder. Don't really mess around trading very much. Um, yeah, you should be a buy and holder if you are, if you don't have any like wider knowledge of, you know, trading in general, uh, you should buy and hold it. Um, I personally hate it. <laughs> I hate holding. <laughs> yeah, I despise hating, but that's just for me. I fully respect holders and I fully respect speculators equally. In fact, I, there's a, there's the thing that triggers me a lot, which is the virtue signaling, signaling that goes against TA people and traders. I mean, TA is my, my first love and I kind of love it. Maybe not as much, but let's say eight out of 10, as much as Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> and, and, it, and it actually has provided me with some alpha, right? On, on top of the Bitcoin I first started out with. So. Yeah, I, I, I think both hodlers and speculators play a very crucial role in the market. Um, hodlers provide the bottoms, um, the floors. Um, they provide the, the base out of which sellers exhaust themselves and capitulate. And speculators provide liquidity, provide the volatility, which is quite important uh, to the game theory of Bitcoin into, uh, in the sense that it attracts a lot more people into the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I kind of love both, but I'm a, a very, I'm, I'm a speculator, I'm a trader. <laughs> That's the role I play in the market. So speaking of speculation, you mentioned that you think that the bottom is in and behind us. Why do you think that? Several factors from a TA and on-chain perspective. Whenever I say on-chain is why what, what I consider the most fundamental aspect of Bitcoin, aside from perhaps, you know, um, analysis into mining economics and all that stuff. Um, I enjoy that a lot, um, but I think on-chain and TA give me my more, most um, significant plus, at least for me. Um, several factors. Uh, one of them is the fact that I do believe we had capitulation from 6K to 3,100. Um, you can see it in momentum. We had the, the lowest recorded RSI ever on the daily chart, which is quite significant. Um, 
we developed the most volatile capitulation event since 2011 um, by several metrics of volatility. Uh, and also you can see a, a very deep bottom signature on the NVT ratio, which is a network value to transactions ratio. Uh, otherwise, market cap divided by transaction value in USD. So um, <clears throat> another way to look at that is velocity, because if you remove price from the numerator, numerator and denominator, you get circulating supply divided by transaction volume and BTC. Um, all that stuff, I mean, uh, if you look at the chart, you can go um, into my Twitter feed and look at some charts I have on it. Um, pretty much velocity historically has led uh, price uh, for Bitcoin and velocity has spiked up and bottomed out since September. And that's very usually very common behavior during the bear markets. You know, uh, velocity drops well before the blow-off top of every cycle. And then it bottoms out in the middle of the bear market. Then you have capitulation, which shows as a spike in NBT, which happened already. And then the, the upward trend of velocity continues afterwards. Um, after the breakout from 400, 4,000, I'm sorry, um, we have been continuing to see a lot of um, an increase and acceleration in velocity as well. So that's that. The other confirmator I like is realize price. Um, to explain it a little bit, um, realize cap as opposed to market cap, uh, it pretty much detects the UTXO. Uh, for the last time it was moved and it stamps price into it. So you get an average of what was paid for all coins in circulation uh, in all history. Uh, right now, realized price stands at about 4,300. We historically, and this is one of the indicators Murad and I invented a while, back, a while ago, uh, the MVRV ratio, market value to, to realized value ratio, uh, pretty much historically you can detect that whenever price market price goes below realized price, you would consider that as being in capitulation because by definition, all the market is underwater. All the market is below break even, right? Realized price is like the average cost basis of the whole market in on-chain terms. So, Usually we stay below it. That's where accumulation of the smartest money in the room happens. And then we stay there for several months and then break out to the upside. That already happened with a breakout from 4K and we've stayed above realized price for, I think about a month now, right? So that's the other factor that, that tells me that. Um, <clears throat> I've also developed um, two metrics that adjust realized price to give you the bottom. They are delta price and balance price. Um, I'm gonna, um, for the sake of time, I'm just gonna explain balance price. So 
under the assumption that realized price is the average paid for all coins in the market, you subtract from that what I called transfer price. Transfer price is the, the symmetry, the, the sum of Bitcoin days destroyed multiplied by price. And that gives you, uh, and you divide that by, by the age of the market multiplied by supply. And it gives you another sense of price, which is the life to date moving average of all the spending that happens on chain. So why spending? Uh, it's pretty much Bitcoin days destroyed. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, Wait, can you actually describe Bitcoin days destroyed? I understand it, but just for the audience. Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin days destroyed is, um, it denotes, it gives you an average of per day in this case, that's why it stays destroyed, but you can, you can use any, any multiple, you can use seconds, decades, uh, centuries, whatever. It's just time, right? It gives you a sense of how much time any UTXO or any coin has been idle or dormant. So how do I measure that? Let's say I send you a Bitcoin and you keep that Bitcoin for five days. And then you send that Bitcoin over to David, right? So whenever you transact that, uh, automatically the days, the, the days of destruction would be five days because that Bitcoin remained dormant just for five days. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Yep. So that stays destroyed. It's pretty much applying a multiple to the number, depending on the number of days, any given coin has remained unmoved. So if you get the average of that and subtract it from realized gap or realized price, you get a quote unquote fair valuation of Bitcoin. Um, under the premise that uh, you subtract what was spent historically or on average from what was both um, bought and sold, right? Fully transacted. So that gives you balanced price. And if you look at the chart, um, it's on the wubble.com, uh, Willy Woo's uh, valuation uh, website. You can see that it gives you the whole accumulation bottom historically of Bitcoin during all three of its cycles so far. So, so we're assuming that every single transaction is an exchange, right? So there's got to be a little bit of noise in there for like, you know, one person just sending them, sending their own Bitcoin to themselves or some Mixing sort of trade or something. Of, of, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot of ways that when you get the the, um, the model, the valuation model, ultimately, right? There's already several filters that remove a lot of noise from them. So, for instance, one of, one of them is um, the um, the archaeologist uh, CoinMetrics Pro right now. Um, you know, Nick Carter, Antoine Le Calvé, all those guys are pretty much the industry standard right now in terms of transaction volume estimates and you know fundamental data in general. Um, one of the reasons why is because they're very good at removing noise from them. So um, 
they apply, apply several heuristics into giving you uh, ungameable estimates. So for instance, if I'm a whale and I own like, I don't know, a billion Bitcoin or whatever, right? <laughs> a million Bitcoin, <laughs> billion Bitcoin. <laughs> billion Bitcoin is impossible, but a million Bitcoin, right? Um, uh, and I want to game the system. I want to game the estimate um, by sending all those Bitcoins back and forth between two addresses. Uh, you, you can actually not do that because the volume estimates do not register that transaction as valid. Uh, so wallets are rotated. There's se several met methodologies into the heuristics that remove a lot of the noise. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is just using smoothing mechanisms. So for instance, almost all my, my charts of on-chain analysis use instead of the raw values, use a seven day or perhaps a 14 day median uh, to remove a lot of the noise. Um, Willy does the same thing. And in the particular cases of realized cap, actually realized cap is not noisy at all. It looks at like a moving average. I don't know if you guys are familiar with moving averages on TradingView, right? Like the 200-day moving average, just a curved line going up and down. It's pretty much the same, <clears throat> very similar to that. Um, and the balance price, delta price, all those models, which are derivatives of realized price, also look very much like, um, you know, very consistent moving average that slowly move up and down. So I kind of want to get into this idea of on-chain analytics. This is something that Nick Carter has talked about in detail, something that Murad has talked about in detail, and obviously um, your fund is really pioneering. You know, why are, you know, how is having this kind of immutable public ledger changing the game from like the kind of, you know, data archaeology you can do? And, you know, how can you use these kind of on-chain data points in order to uh, make informed decisions? Well, it's a whole industry uh, right now. Uh, we, we've been, we even talked about it privately, uh, several of us. Uh, we, we've called it, uh, I think Nick uh, was the one who, who called it the golden age of on-chain analytics in the sense that, you know, since hedge funds, um, I mean, the whole market is getting very sophisticated. Uh, you can see it on Twitter, the amount of brain power coming from uh, both archaeologists, like Antoine de Calvé, which is uh, the main archaeologist at CoinMetrics, um, pretty much the, the, the best archaeologist in the whole world, blockchain archaeologist in the world, um, and also analysts that use that data, right? And provide these new valuation models. Um, I think it's just part natural course of two things, right? One, finding an edge to get extra money, right? As a hedge fund or as an analyst or reputation as well, for sure. Uh, but also it's another way to signal to institutional investors to big, huge whales who have amounts of money, which most people could not comprehend, right? Uh, mostly to signal to them that there's actual ways to value Bitcoin, uh, at the very least Bitcoin and 
possibly, I don't know if now, but later on, uh, altcoins. Um, so I think that's the job right now. It's twofold. Yeah, it's selfish. And it's also um, a little bit of, you know, broadcasting to the whole population that you can actually have a feel on how to enter this market properly. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why a lot of this research is very open source, right? In, in the tradition of Bitcoin uh, and crypto in general. Um, you never see this this sort of stuff in, in traditional markets. Um, but anyway, uh, the use for on-chain analytics, um, so far the use has been long-term. It allows you, it works perfectly if you are uh, a position trader, right? Multi-month to multi-year trader. Um, one example of that is Willy Wu. I think he's one of the best position traders I've seen in crypto. Um, and he precisely uses only or pretty much only on-chain analytics to do so. Uh, very few TA, very little TA. <clears throat> uh, gives you a sense of several things. First of all, what part of the cycle are you in? It gives you a sense of extremes. So for instance, it gives you a sense of whether you're getting into or nearing the blow off top. Um, like we had one on 2017 or if you're nearing the bottom, right? Uh, so far, at least from what it has been published, it doesn't work for, you know, uh, swing trades or day trades or whatever. It's more long-term horizons. Um, also, uh, in fact, well, in fact, the, the research into finding a lot of the edge from intradaily on-chain transactions is being done right now, right? By myself and others. And um, possibly that's one of the lines of inquiry we're gonna go more severely in the next few years, right? Trying to get alpha from um, um, on-chain transactions that go into and out of exchanges perhaps, um, and try to backtest that. Um, when you get, uh, um, the other thing that blockchain analytics also gives you is that it, it's especially difficult to trade in this market because you have several exchanges with very unreliable data, right? Um, you don't have a, a Bloomberg terminal or whatever when you can readily click and pretty much get the whole horizon of the market. Um, accessing data is very inefficient. Um, it's very, uh, it's done very casually, very home, homemade, you could say. Um, a lot of hedge funds still work in a very homemade way. Um, so to remove that noise, right, on-chain analytics gives you a sense of, you know, just looking at, at, looking at investors, holders, and people who actually have a deeper skin in the game, in the market aside of, just the trader games, as Willie will call them, calls it, um, going on in exchanges, right? So <clears throat> I think it gives you a sense of what stage of the cycle you're in. It gives you a sense of whether the primary trend is bullish or bearish, and it removes the noise coming from exchanges 
and quite a few times from TA to give you a proper sense of market narrative, which is quite important when, whenever you're trading, uh, even if it's day or swing trading. So want to give you a big uh, hats off and thanks for providing all of the uh, the I, it's, it's kind of like an actual visualization of the blockchain for people that you know are, view this space skeptically and, and with hesitation. Like the institutional investors that you know don't really get passionate about these things in the same way that that I do or Christian does or you do, and they need that extra illustration of what a blockchain actually is in order to feel comfortable about that. So that's kind of how I view, view your guys's works with all these uh, on-chain analytics. So, you know, thank you for pioneering that space and, and making people with a lot of, you know, US dollar values being uh, more comfortable with crypto and, and hopefully get them to be to be crypto denominated values. Tampa, David. Um, I do want to ask about uh, if you've done any on-chain analytics for other blockchains that aren't Bitcoin, mainly uh, Ethereum or and how those patterns, if they are replicatable on other blockchains and, um, a, have you done them? And B, is there demand for for these the non-Bitcoin data from from institutions, or is it mainly kind of demand for just the Bitcoin data? Um, yeah, uh, we've been delving into <clears throat> either replicating or natively producing brand new models, depending on the coin, right? Uh, based on on-chain analytics, you know, different coins have different properties, so you can get. Uh, maybe a different, an extra signal from something that maybe Bitcoin doesn't have because that's not part of the Bitcoin blockchain, right? So yes, we've done it, um, especially on the coins we are looking into uh, for the fund. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not available, available to disclose them right now, uh, but I can tell you a few things. Like for instance, Litecoin, Litecoin, which is quite similar to Bitcoin, right? Uh, and several um, factors, even economic, from economic, economical ones to um, to game theoretical ones, uh, and cryptographic. Um, the most similar, I guess, to Bitcoin in on-chain terms, may be Litecoin, but even even that one is not as I don't know. There's there's a symmetry to Bitcoin. Whenever you see these charts, um, whether it's realized cap, NVT, um, valence cap, all all the models we've invented so far, um, there's a symmetry to it in the way the ratios played out. It's all very. It's like an orchestra. Bitcoin internally, it's quite amazing. Uh, at least from a visual pattern recognition standpoint, you can actually see the cycles very clearly. Uh, you can see the levels of the ratios playing out almost perfectly. Uh, whenever you have overvaluation or undervaluation, see that uh, how realized cap has historically captured capitulation periods quite beautifully. Unfortunately, at least from what I've seen so far, and uh, several people agree with me. Um, several people who look into on-chain analytics, um, they don't seem to replicate as beautifully or at all in 
most altcoins. And I have several theories for that. One of them is that I think that from an economical or you could say organic standpoint, Bitcoin is the one that leads the market and, and the one liquidity asset that actually carries the whole ecosystem. So given that, and since it's all correlated mostly uh, to Bitcoin, you don't usually see the same perfection in terms of, you know, oh, Litecoin achieved the precise same level on MVRV ratio as, as Bitcoin, right? Like, because in Bitcoin, you, you get the level and it's almost historically like perfect, right? But Litecoin is not the case. The, the chart is much more difficult to analyze. I think that's because, you know, maybe they don't complete in on-chain terms that capitulation or whatever that level, but they have to go up since they are the alpha to Bitcoin. And since Bitcoin has already uh, capitulated or completed its own music, the alts have to follow or they have to, to lead Bitcoin in terms of uh, alpha and illiquid assets. Uh, and then Bitcoin follows, but it's always related to Bitcoin. It's all related to Bitcoin. So it's very hard to function or for an altcoin to function quote, quote unquote organically in economic terms or on-chain terms, when you have two factors, right? The trader game, since they are quite more liquid as compared to Bitcoin, the trader games have much more effect on them than, than in, in Bitcoin, right? And since on-chain analytics pretty much tries to remove trader games, right? Um, then you don't have that, that music as precise as in Bitcoin. So there's several signals that yeah, for sure have worked on, on other coins. Uh, the one that best captures that is Litecoin, I think, from what I've seen. Uh, there are other, other few exceptions. Um, <clears throat> Ethereum, Ethereum, yeah, it changes a little bit, but It's pretty much the same, I think. I have to revise the charts. I don't have them right here, the, the Ethereum on-chain analytics charts are the top, the top of my head, especially because I don't have that much interest in Ethereum. But um, yeah, it doesn't play out as perfectly. Um, I'm, what we mostly do is um, <clears throat> use uh, on-chain analytics on Bitcoin and the, the alts that actually have a use in it and then just supply, support that with TA and some correlation studies that we do in uh, seasonality and all that stuff um, between Bitcoin and the alts. The other thing that I think skews a lot of the on-chain metrics uh, for the alts is that a lot of them have pair, are paired with Bitcoin, right? So um, a lot of the flows are not only in terms of fiat, going into Bitcoin and Bitcoin going into fiat, but it's, you have like a three, like a tripod of interaction between fiat, Bitcoin and the alt. So that skews the data quite more. So yeah, yeah, I haven't found it as useful in alts. There's some use for it for sure, 
but not quite as beautifully as as in Bitcoin. So in alts, would you say that it's really just about TA and and playing off of Bitcoin? Um, for the most part, yeah. There's few exceptions. Um, there's one exception that I don't I. I we have interest in that coin right now, so I don't want to mention it publicly. Um, and we're doing research, heavy research into that coin and a few others. But for the most part, yeah. So yeah, uh, for the maximalists, you can actually claim that at least on economic terms, Bitcoin plays the, the, the best music. <laughs> Looks the, the most, the prettiest at least. All right, David, my last question for you is like, give me an unpopular opinion that you have. Uh, when Murad came on the show, he was just throwing unpopular opinions around. Um, and I know that, you know, you talk with him and other really smart people and you yourself, um, you know, are have have a really sharp head on your shoulders. Would love to like, kind of get like, you know, where are you seeing signal where other people are just kind of ignoring? Unpopular opinion, oh boy. Um, there's still a lot of room for dumb money to keep getting rich in this market. Oh, that's me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I don't want to go, I don't want to be specific, but in general, right? <laughs> oh, that, that's good to hear. I like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's, well, that's the other thing. The, the on-ramps are quite, like the filters are null here, right? So mm -hmm. you can enter whenever you want, exit whenever you want. And if you have the faith and the belief, you're in, dude. Mm -hmm. You're in for the next four years at least. Yeah, welcoming the uh, the next cycle, the members of the next cycle starting now, hopefully. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, David, for that sure. was it's such a treasure trove of information. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you, about your work, or just follow you in general, where should they go? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. That's what, where I release most of my work. There's a Medium link on that Twitter profile. You can find me at Kenosha King. <laughs> it's a play on words of Kenosha Kid, the Thomas Pynchon, um, from the Thomas Pynchon novel. But it's just Kenosha King and uh, Twitter, whatever. Right. We'll have that in the show notes um, for those guys who uh, just want to go and grab it there. Um, Perfect. Where's the best place for people to find your charts and, and some of the data that you're referencing? Um, yeah, uh, either my Twitter feed or the Medium articles I published. Uh, that's linked on the Twitter profile. Uh, live charts, you can also see them at wubble.com. Uh, Willie uh, is currently our advisor at the fund. Uh, we pretty much work with him day to day developing new models all the time. Um, so all the, the, the stuff that will go live, either it's already there or most likely it will be published there, right? Because I'm working with Willie all the time. <clears throat> Awesome. Well, again, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is going to be one that I listened to a couple of times just to try to like pull up the charts and follow along uh, in all the material that I've read from you and Adaptive Capital. 
has all been super interesting and uh, I'm hoping that we can introduce you to a lot of new people um, from this podcast. Uh, thanks again for coming on, man. No, thank you for having me. A pleasure. All right, guys, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can also follow me at Trustless State Christian. Yep, you can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Guys, things are getting pretty fun here at POV Crypto. We might have a website soon. We might start doing live video. Make sure to rate and review the pod so that way we continue to have encouragement to put more effort into this project. And thanks again, David, for coming on to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure.